guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. And I just thought of a post I saw in the Facebook group, our fan group. They were saying, some people were saying that they they like say the intro along with me. So that made me really self-conscious just this time when I was just saying it. I was like, I wonder how many people are saying it along with me. So yeah, I thought that was really weird. Isn't that weird? It is funny, but it's like my own, like, that's how I know what to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> It helps me too. So I appreciate the consistency. I need some kind of like direction in my life. So anytime there's a map laid out for me, I'm very happy to follow along. I do very well with that. So I appreciate it. One time you're going to have to switch it up just to really mess with people. Yeah. And myself probably, because <laughs> I don't even, I don't even think I could be capable of saying anything else at the beginning of the show at this point. Probably not. <laughs> so we don't really have anything major to announce this week. I think we're just really going to get right into the episode. This week's episode is about a murder of a young woman that went unsolved for years, really, until another murder with really stark similarities occurred and led the police to make connections between these two victims. The story this week takes place in Vincennes, Indiana. And before we get into the story, we're going to tell you a little about Vincennes in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So before we get started, we actually asked a group of people, Hoosiers, if you will, how to pronounce the name of this town because we don't want to get it wrong. So we think we're pretty confident it's Vincennes, but if you Google it, you will get four different pronunciations. So we went to the source, to the people, and they said Vincennes. So you're going to have to take it up with them if we're doing it wrong. I'll give you names. <laughs> so Vincennes, Indiana is located in southwestern Indiana and has a population of around 18,000 residents as of the 2010 census. The city was named after Francois-Marie Bissot. Now, remember, it's Vincennes. Where do they come up with that whenever it's named after somebody named Francois-Marie Bissot? <laughs> I can't put that one together. I looked at it like four times. I'm like, I don't think I'm reading that right. But Francois was a French Canadian explorer. And after laying claim to Vincennes, the city was formally settled in 1732 by fur traders and is the oldest city in Indiana. In 1955, Vincennes welcomed Charlie's Candy. Charlie's Candy began in the home of Charles and Loretha Hampke. While the couple were having their home remodeled, they would share homemade caramel corn after their friends helped them with their house. That seems like a pretty sweet deal for them and not a great <laughs> deal for their friends. I'm not saying that the candy's not great, but like throw a few dollars my way. That's that's not a it doesn't work out too great for me. But apparently it worked and people started asking them for their dessert and thus Charlie's candy began and it actually still operates out of the same home. Lewis and Clark began their exploration of the Northwest Territory in Fort Vincent, Indiana. A few hundred years later, Lois and Clark began their exploration of what real love meant in the heart of a young Melissa who fell deeply in love with the new adventures of Superman. I loved that show as a kid. Did you ever watch it? <laughs> I did it not. Was, <laughs> it was on TNT all the time. My mom, I think, had a crush on the Superman. My dad, I think, had a crush on Lois. I don't know why <laughs> I knew that. It should have been uncomfortable for me, but I really loved that show. Indiana is home to the most famous miniature horse. A miniature horse, not a pony, Mandy by the name of Lil Sebastian. Sadly, Lil Sebastian died in 2011, but his spirit lives on. The town of Pawnee had a huge celebration where its 
residents gathered. The song 5,000 Candles in the Wind played. Ron Swanson cried. It was a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) I see what's happening here now. (laughs) Yeah, it took a minute to get there. But that is a reference to Parks and Rec. Mandy watches that sometimes, right? I did. I do. Sometimes. I watched it enough to get where you were going with that. There you go. (laughs) On my last and final clue, you got it. But you got it. So lastly, beginning in 1897 in Indiana, reports started coming through about residents seeing what they called a big airship in the sky. The reports were from Hammond, Gary, South Bend, and the surrounding areas. In Vincennes, the airship was spotted in the same year. And this, of course, was way before the term UFO thought this was a very good one for you. So UFOs before they were UFOs. So Mandy, I guess the truth is out there. That's an X-Files joke. Okay, let's get to the episode. The idea of heading off to college is a dream that many high school students have, whether it be because they want to pursue an education that will lead them to their dream job or because they want to get away from their parents. Most young adults welcome the freedom and independence that comes with starting college. This was certainly the case for a young woman in Vincennes named Brooke Baker. Brooke was born on April 24, 1978, to parents Maurice and Janet Baker. She grew up with her brother, Braun, in a close-knit, albeit pretty poor family. Brooke and her brother were very close as siblings, and Braun looked up to his sister and admired her ambition. They both attended high school at South Knox High School, and Brooke was a member of the South Knox Band, the Foreign Language Club, and Students Against Driving Drunk. Even as a young teen, she was very passionate about the things that she cared about, and she wasn't afraid to speak out against issues that she felt were pressing in her community. Brooke was known as being a social butterfly who enjoyed meeting new people and would happily talk to anyone. In high school, she discovered a passion for writing and the art of journalism, and she was part of the team that worked on the high school newspaper. It became evident to Brooke's family and friends and even her teachers that she had this natural talent for all things editorial, and it was no surprise to anyone when Brooke decided that she wanted to pursue a degree in journalism once she graduated from high school. Her parents were beyond thrilled that their daughter had chosen a career path that suited her, and it was even more exciting because nobody in Brooke's family had attended college before her, so she would actually be the first one to go in her family, and everybody was really excited for her. Although she was from this very small town, she had big dreams and big aspirations of one day becoming a reporter on a national scale. It was Brooke's ultimate dream to one day make it as a reporter for the Rolling Stone. And that was kind of one one of the things that she was working towards in life. Even though she was from this small town, that was kind of her like her dream. Like, if I can do this, then I'll know, you know, I've made it right. with my, my career that I want to have. But she knew that if she was going to make this dream a reality, she was going to have to put some serious effort and work into it to be able to break free of her small community and make a name for herself out in the world. The first step on this journey, she decided, would be to enroll in a two-year journalism program at her local college, which was Vincennes University. Vincennes University is the oldest public college in Indiana. It was founded in 1801 and currently offers over 180 programs to choose from, including certificate programs, associate degrees, and six bachelor programs. Almost immediately after starting college and joining the university newspaper staff, Brooke became well-known for her writing talents and her ability to take charge. She was getting a ton of hands-on experience in making editorial decisions on her own when it came to the VU paper, which was called the Trailblazer. Brooke's outgoing personality also made it really easy for her to make friends. 
She became close with Shauna Cooper, who already recognized her from high school and who had seen her writing for the high school paper. Shauna was also on the university newspaper staff, and she introduced herself to Brooke, and the two became really fast friends. But Brooke had a lot of other friends as well, including her roommate Jason, who she was living with temporarily while she found her own place. There were a few other guys living in the apartment, but Brooke had really no problem fitting in with them. She began casually seeing another VU student named Steve. Steve was actually really smitten with Brooke, but she was far more interested in the work she was doing for the school paper and pursuing her dream of becoming a big-time reporter than she was in actually developing a romantic relationship. So the couple dated off and on casually, but were never really seriously committed to each other. Brooke spent the majority of her time chasing and developing stories to write for the Trailblazer, and by her second semester at the university, she started to want to push the envelope and dig into bigger stories. She was ready to move on from merely reporting on events and actually start investigating stories that she felt needed her attention. When Brooke heard rumors around campus about an alleged rape that took place at and was supposedly being covered up by a fraternity, she knew that this was a story she really wanted to take on. What she intended to produce was an expose on the campus fraternities and all of the problematic activities that they were involved in. It was a really risky story, and it was one that was sure to upset a lot of people, but Brooke was determined to make a name for herself and knew that she would have to do these types of difficult stories if she had any hope of making it as a reporter on a national scale. Although the fraternities at Vincennes University had kind of bad reputations, they were very powerful and had a heavy influence over student life and even the student government. Brooke came up with a plan to essentially infiltrate one of the largest fraternities on campus and gather the information she needed to write this story. Luckily for her, the guy that she had been rooming with was a member of this fraternity, so she had a pretty easy in. Brooke's friend Shauna and the other university newspaper staff, including her journalism professor, urged her to proceed with caution and express their concerns over her digging into such a serious matter. But Brooke was determined to write the piece, and she decided to move forward with working on the story. As part of her research, she asked her roommate Jason and one of his fraternity brothers, Brian Jones, about upcoming frat parties that she might be able to attend. She learned that there was a party nearly every Thursday for what they called Thirsty Thursdays, and these parties were really quite wild with a lot of underage drinking and occasional drug use, and they often lasted well into the early morning hours of the following day. Brooke and Shauna went to the next party where Brooke's main goal was to observe and gather information. Her outgoing personality made it really easy for her to effortlessly blend in with the crowd, and she managed to talk to enough people and found out the name of the young woman who had allegedly been raped by a member of this fraternity. But Brooke's inquisitive ways caught the attention of several fraternity members, and it really rubbed them the wrong way. Some of them even became really angry that Brooke was snooping around and asking these questions. But Brooke pressed on, and she began to interview several female students who had bad run-ins with these fraternity members, and she attempted to interview the woman in question about the sexual assault that she had experienced. At first, this woman agreed to speak with Brooke, but when Brooke arrived, she actually changed her mind and said she didn't want to speak about it. Brooke began to receive harassing emails and verbal threats from some of the fraternity members who disliked her prodding. They left notes on her door, warning her to stop digging around and that she'd better watch her back. Terrifying if you're a college student with no real assistance. You know what I mean? If you're a reporter, you might have, I don't know, 
you're, <laughs> you're more established. You have other people around and she's literally a college kid looking into a crime. That seems just really, really scary. And to receive these kind of notes would be, you know, obviously very terrifying. Right. So at one point, a truck of fraternity members showed up to the apartment that Brooke was living in and threatened her, telling her that she would be dead if she wrote any story about the fraternity. But Brooke was mostly unfazed by this. She was bound and determined to write the story that she believed was so important to share because she wanted to protect others on campus from becoming victims. She confided in her friends and family that she had been receiving these threats and even told her journalism professor that she was being harassed. As things really started to heat up, Brooke decided to move out of the apartment that she shared with Jason and into her own place. She chose a small apartment that was technically off campus, but was right across the street from the building where she would have to walk to attend classes and work on the trailblazer. The apartment she rented was owned by a campus security police officer named Mike Nardine, so Brooke felt a strong sense of security when she was moving into this apartment, and she believed that living off campus would help with the harassment. Unfortunately, moving into her new place would end up being another source of stress for Brooke. As soon as she moved in, she began having some issues with her landlord. On numerous occasions, she mentioned to her friends and family that Mike would frequently show up at her house unannounced and that he startled her on several different occasions. In one incident, she awoke to a light being shined into her window by the landlord, and in another scarier instance, he actually let himself into the house while Brooke was taking a shower. There is no feeling worse than coming out of the shower and feeling like there's somebody in your house that shouldn't be there. Just in general, if you've ever gotten out of the shower and you're like, you hear noise and you're like, that doesn't sound like my kid or, you know, it's a terrifying feeling like more than any other thing you could be doing in your house coming out of the shower, but to actually find your landlord in the house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that, and there's like no reason why a landlord should be letting themselves in like that. Like they have to give you notice that they're coming you know, coming by, like they, landlords don't just show up and let themselves in. No. supposed to anyway. Right. So whenever she gets out of the shower, though, she just sees him standing in her house. And he apologized and claims to have been there for some legitimate reason. But Brooke was obviously very shaken by this and demanded that he leave immediately. At some point, Brooke put an ad in the campus newspaper looking for a roommate, but she didn't get many responses and only spoke to one potential student who might want to move in. Despite the many unsettling experiences Brooke was having at college, she continued to push forward in pursuit of her goals and tried to really enjoy her time at the university. The threats she'd received from fraternity members regarding the story she was writing led her to file a complaint with the campus police, and she was trying to get some extra security patrols around her house. On the night of September 6, 1997, Brooke and her casual boyfriend Steve attended a party together. Steve indulged in alcohol all night, and after a few hours, Brooke decided to leave and head home for the night. This was the last time Brooke would be seen alive. And we are going to get into exactly what happened next after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We don't all have the same hair, so why should we all use the same shampoo and conditioner? Now you don't have to with Function of Beauty. My hair is super baby thin and fine, and the older I get, the thinner it gets. So I need a shampoo and conditioner that gives it a little va-va-voom. And I also color my hair, which means I need help for color-treated hair. Plus, I'm also using heat, so some thermal help would be perfect. I can buy six separate bottles of shampoos and conditioners for all of my hair needs, 
or I can find it all at Function of Beauty. Curly or straight, natural or processed, Function of Beauty individually formulates every bottle based on your unique hair type, style preferences, and hair goals. After taking the short four-question quiz on their website, Function of Beauty created my personalized formula. Within the quiz, I was able to select my five main hair goals. I chose strengthen, lengthen, thermal protection, anti-frizz, and hydrate. My special formula is exactly what I need and somehow still the best smelling shampoo and conditioner I've ever used. I chose their pear scent, but there are other fragrances that I can't wait to try. And if you aren't a fan of fragrances, they also offer their products fragrance and dye free. To get started right now, go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to take your four part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash moms to let them know that we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com slash moms. As a mom, we wear a lot of hats, like person who heats up food in the microwave or person who moves the clothes from the washer to the dryer. But one thing that's really hard about being a mom is making the time to take care of myself. Luckily, Noom makes that easy. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps its users develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Noom only asks for 10 minutes a day, which even the lunch packer in the family can make time to do. What I really love about Noom is the amazing community. It's nice to have access to my goal specialist or the Noom community just to check in or get some encouragement on days when I'm feeling less than motivated. But we're not talking about a diet here because Noom is not a diet, but it's a healthy and easy to stick to way of life that teaches you rather than telling you what to do. My goal for this year is to be healthier, but what does that really mean? Well, for me, it means I want to learn how to make healthy choices more easily and to understand why I think about food the way that I do. My goal in this isn't a weight-specific one. It's just to feel better, and feeling better means I'm more present in my life and with my family. If you're ready to get started, sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about the last night that Brooke Baker was seen alive and she had attended this party with her on-again, off-again boyfriend. The following day, September 7th, at around 9 p.m., Brooke's brother, Braun, showed up at her apartment looking for her. We mentioned earlier that these two had an incredibly close sibling relationship and Braun actually had a key to Brooke's apartment for emergencies. When she didn't answer the door that evening, he let himself inside. He immediately noticed the sound of running water coming from the bathroom and he saw that there were some towels in the tub and a bottle of bleach on the bathroom floor. It seemed kind of strange, but he thought maybe his sister was just cleaning, so he continued to walk through the apartment looking for her. When he came to Brooke's bedroom door, he noticed that it was slightly open, and when he looked inside, he saw Brooke lying on the mattress, which actually was on the floor. At first, he thought she was sleeping because he said her hair was perfectly combed into place, and of course, it's also nighttime, so it's dark. But then as he kind of looked around and took a closer look, he noticed that something was very wrong. He noticed that Brooke's body was bloody and that she had visible stab wounds on her chest. Braun ran from the room and immediately dialed 911. When the police arrived, they secured the scene and nobody was allowed to go in the house. There were no signs of forced entry, so it was believed that whoever had done this was someone that Brooke knew and had let inside willingly. Detective Winkler searched the home for evidence. 
After observing Brooke's body, he determined that she had been the victim of rape before she was killed. Her body showed signs that she had been physically restrained against her will with bruising on her wrists, her hands, legs, pelvis, and even the back of her elbows. Crime scene technicians collected DNA samples from semen found on Brooke's body and sheets, as well as samples from under her fingernails. She had been stabbed twice in the chest and 11 times in the back in what was a brutal attack. The officer noticed blood splatter on the walls of the room, indicating that Brooke had fought for her life and had really tried to get away. As far as other evidence, police noticed the towels in the tub and the bleach in the bathroom, and they also located a bloody knife in the kitchen sink under some dishes. It appeared that there was an attempt to clean up this crime scene, and they thought that was the case because near the kitchen sink, of course, the knife was in the sink, but then there was also two empty bottles of dishwashing liquid as if somebody had been really trying to scrub evidence off of these materials. Once all the evidence had been collected, it was time for the police to start putting together a list of possible suspects. It would be weeks before the DNA sequencing on the semen found at the crime scene was actually completed. So all they could do was start talking to people in hopes of narrowing down the list of possible suspects. The issue was that Brooke happened to know a lot of people. So investigators started with the closest to her and then fanned out from there. Braun Baker had talked to the police the night his sister's body was discovered and told them about Steve, the guy that Brooke had been casually dating. Steve was interviewed and he confirmed that he knew Brooke but said that they weren't actually in a serious relationship. He said that he was at the party with her the night she was last seen, but that she went home alone and he stayed at the party. He told police that he actually was drinking really heavily that night and he was smoking marijuana, as did several people at the party, and that he really had a hard time recalling the exact details of the night beyond a certain point. This was something police ran into with numerous people they spoke with. Many could confirm that Brooke was at the party, but then things got sort of fuzzy when they tried to remember when she left and with who, if she left with anyone. Steve's story to the police never changed, and they didn't have any evidence against him, so they eventually let him go, and they moved on to interview other people. The next people that police spoke to were her fellow journalism students and her professor. They learned about the story that Brooke was working on about the alleged rape on campus involving some fraternity members. They told police how they had been really concerned about Brooke working on the story, and they wondered if that had anything to do with her murder. However, they also told police that Brooke had confided to them about her issues with her landlord and how she, on multiple occasions, said that he really creeped her out and that she was very uncomfortable with his surprise visits to her house. Other women around campus also stated that they were uncomfortable around Mike Nardine, who, as we mentioned before, was the police officer that actually worked as campus security at the university. So he became a possible suspect but his alibi was that he had been working all night that night and he could easily prove this by checking his time slip. Police knew that even if Mike was working that night, his patrol route went right past Brooke's home, but they didn't really have any real evidence that Mike had anything to do with it. But police hadn't ruled out anyone at this point and there were others that were still being investigated. Investigators slowly started speaking to several of the fraternity members and every person they talked to led them to another person and another they really were hoping to be narrowing down their list, but instead they just kept adding more and more people to it. When the police learned that Brooke had recently listed an ad for a roommate in the school paper, they felt like their suspect could literally be anyone on campus. Nevertheless, they pressed on and collected DNA samples from everyone they spoke with in hopes that once the DNA from the crime scene came back, 
somebody would be a match. In total, police collected DNA samples from 65 different men. The days and weeks ticked on, and police hadn't learned any solid information that would help them solve this murder. A few weeks later, the DNA sequencing from the crime scene was complete, and investigators had a complete DNA profile of who they believed was the killer. Unfortunately, when they tested these samples that they had taken from dozens of men that they'd already interviewed, not one of them was a match. Up until this point, Brooks' landlord had been one of their top suspects. After all, he did have a key to Brooks' apartment, which would make sense with their finding that there was no sign of forced entry. However, he was cleared of all suspicion when his DNA did not match the DNA found at the scene. The other main suspects in this case were some of the college students that Brooke had close run-ins with, including her on-again, off-again boyfriend Steve and her roommate Jason, but neither of them was a match either. After weeks of waiting and trying to piece together what happened, police were back to square one when the DNA failed to lead them to anyone in particular. They began interviewing and taking samples from everyone who could have possibly been in the area on the night of the murder, and investigators said that they collected samples from nearly the entire student population at the university, but no matches were ever found, which is just so crazy and frustrating because the police know this has to be done by somebody who's here locally and that knows her. This wasn't just like a random person that came to town killed this young lady and then took off into the night like that that wouldn't make any sense I'm not saying that couldn't happen but that's not usually how things go yeah so and being a small college town like they definitely knew the person they were looking for had to be right under their nose but they just had not found they hadn't found them yet and like I cannot imagine how frustrating that would be after collecting so many DNA samples and speaking to so many different people and then just to find out that you waited all these weeks for this for this forensic evidence and you just don't, it's still is nothing. You still don't have anything. I'm curious if back in 1997, people were more willing to give up their DNA. I was thinking about that when I was reading through this. Now I wonder if you would have less people opt in and say, yeah, with a warrant. You know what I mean? If they're just going up to people, I feel like we know a lot more now. Maybe I'm just, (laughs) maybe I'm just thinking of myself. Yeah. I don't know. But I also feel like college kids, like sometimes like not really. Because if I, when I was in college, if the police came to me and they're like, here, we need your DNA so we can clear you of this crime, I'd be like, yeah, here, sure. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> but like now I would be like, meh. Come back with a warrant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At this point, the investigation pretty much came to a standstill. And Brooke's parents were just devastated. And they feared that their daughter's murder would go unsolved, like several murders before her. In November of 1997, Brooks' father asked the FBI to get involved in the case. Brooks' parents refused to stay quiet as they searched for justice in the death of their daughter. They continued to point fingers at the fraternity, specifically the Sigma Pi fraternity, and fully believed that a fraternity member was responsible for the rape and stabbing. Sadly, it would still be a while before they would receive any answers. And we're going to get right back into the story after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. My two biggest excuses for not working out are not having enough time and not knowing what the heck to even do. Although I actually went to the gym two summers ago, it was a pain in the butt to get there and I really saw no results because frankly, I had no idea what I was even doing. 
Now with OpenFit, I can join classes on my schedule and I don't have to worry about others watching me work out or feel like I need to attempt to keep up with the Guido working out next to me at the gym. OpenFit is for all workout levels and brings the gym to you. Remember the sweating to the oldies videos from yesteryear? The same exercise as you or your mom would watch over and over again? That gets boring really quick, which is why I think that one of the coolest features of OpenFit is that every Monday, OpenFit launches a new three-week live challenge, a different live workout every day for three weeks. You can even connect with your trainer and classmates using OpenFit's live chat tool. Plus, some places only sell classes as a package, and often you can't make it to every class. OpenFit brings those classes to you anytime, anywhere, and you can do some in just 10 minutes and in mismatched socks and dirty sweats. OpenFit has changed the way I work out and texting our code MOMS to 505050, you can join us on a fitness journey personalized just for you. Right now during the OpenFit 14-day challenge, our listeners get a special extended 14-day free trial membership to OpenFit when you text MOMS to 505050. You will get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts and nutrition information, totally free. Again, just text MOMS to 505050. Standard message and data rates may apply. We've had our Rothy's for just about a year now, and I still wear mine almost daily. And that's because they're not only stylish, but they're also sustainable, comfortable, washable, really, all of that in one pair of shoes. When I first heard about Rothy's, I have to admit I was a little skeptical that a pair of shoes that are seamlessly knit from plastic water bottles could actually be comfortable, but they really are. And they're actually comfortable from the moment you put them on and need no break-in period. If you're like us and always wearing your Rothy's, another important feature is that they are completely machine washable. When you've worn them just a little too often, you can throw them in the wash for a quick refresh. Rothy's are great for any occasion, but I love that I can wear mine with a skirt, shorts, or pants. They truly are my everyday shoe. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges, so there's no risk, no worries, and no reason not to try. It's easy to see why BuzzFeed called Rothy's their forever shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash moms. Go to rothys.com, that's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. So nearly two years have passed with no movement in the investigation of Brooks' murder. And then on July 5th, 1999, police got a call that would change everything. Another student at the university named Erica Norman was suspiciously missing. And when police went to her apartment, they found a bloody scene that was nearly identical to the Brooke Baker crime scene. Erica wasn't there, but there was blood on the walls of her apartment, and there appeared to have been a struggle with couch cushions on the floor and tables overturned. What really caught police attention was that the water in the bathroom was left running, and there were cushions in the tub, which was very similar to what they found at Brooke Baker's apartment nearly two years earlier. Although they didn't have a body, Erica Norman was presumed dead. In the early days in the investigation of what happened to Erica, police learned that she had been at a bar the night before she went missing. They called the bar and learned that Erica was in fact there that night, and in a stroke of pure luck, the person they spoke with also knew the name of the person she was there with, Brian Jones. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it's one of the guys from that same group that Brooke Baker hung around and attended fraternity parties with. Brian Jones was a member of Sigma Pi fraternity and was a friend of Brooke's roommate, Jason. Police immediately located Brian and brought him in for questioning. 
It was certainly suspicious that Brian had a connection to both of the victims, but investigators knew that this was a small college town and that it really could be nothing more than a coincidence. The quickest way to determine whether or not Brian had anything to do with Brooks' murder was to simply test his DNA against the sample they had taken from the crime scene. But there was one small problem. When they went to find his DNA sample out of all of those that they collected before, they realized that they didn't have one on him. So you may be asking yourself, how did Brian manage to slip through the cracks of the Brooke Baker investigation? After all, they took DNA samples from just about everyone in that circle, and then some. So how did Brian's name never come up? Well, as it would turn out, shortly after Brooke's murder, Brian actually moved away, which of course isn't really alarming because that's what happens in a college town. People move in and people move out all the time. So he had moved away before police could get to him and collect his DNA sample. And then once he was gone, they were unable to track him down. So now Brian was actually back in Vincennes and he was now the lead suspect in the disappearance and possible murder of Erica Norman. When police questioned him about the new case, he admitted that he had been with Erica the last night that she was seen alive, but he said that he walked her home that night, he went inside of her house and spent a quiet evening with her, and then he left when she fell asleep on her couch. He seemed very willing to help in any way that he could with this investigation, and he offered up his DNA willingly. What police did not mention to him was that they planned on comparing his DNA to the one found at the Brooke Baker crime scene. So when they're speaking to him and interviewing him about Erica Norman, he's like, yeah, sure, I'll give you my DNA. They didn't tell him, oh, by the way, we're also going to test your DNA against this other case that's unsolved. So, you know, he didn't know that that was the plan that they were doing that. So sure enough, DNA analysis confirmed that Brian's DNA was a match to the semen found on Brooke's body two years prior. The skin cells found under Brooke's fingernails were also a match to Brian Jones, further proving that he had been the one to kill her. Brian Jones was immediately arrested on murder charges in the case of Brooke Baker. Although police still hadn't located Erica Norman, they believed that Brian had also murdered her. Once in police custody, Brian became very uncooperative and refused to speak about the Brooke Baker case at all. But it didn't really matter at that point because police had already gathered enough evidence and interviewed enough people to piece together what they believe happened on the night that Brooke was killed. It was verified by several witnesses that Brooke had been at a party the night she died and that Brian was also at the same party, which was really just blocks away from the apartment that Brooke was renting. Investigators believe that Brian went over to Brooke's apartment late that night and she invited him in. At some point, Brian made sexual advances at Brooke, which she denied, and that made him angry. Brian then forced himself upon Brooke and brutally raped her before stabbing her to death. In the course of the investigation, it was learned that Brian had rented a movie called Curdled in the days leading up to Brooke's murder. And in that movie, there there's actually a murder scene depicted in which a man stabbed a victim numerous times in the back and then cleaned the knife in the victim's own kitchen sink. So remember, they found the bloody knife in Brooke's kitchen sink the night that she was killed. So they're basically saying like, they're using this as circumstantial evidence that he was the one to commit the murder. They're saying, oh, he just watched this like exact thing in a movie that he rented. And then it just so happens that that was what happened in Brooke's case. So they're basically, I mean, obviously it's not like a for sure thing, but it does, it is a little bit of a coincidence. Yeah. It is interesting what they're allowed to bring into cases. Cause sometimes you're like, that seems great. You know, like I watched Dexter for like nine seasons and I don't have anyone chopped up or thrown into the bottom of, 
you know, the ocean in Miami. And nobody will think that you watching Dexter is weird unless you do have a bunch of bodies chopped True. up and you're throwing <laughs> into the ocean. This is my cover. But, you know, then you hear other things that aren't allowed in court and you're like, hang on, that first one seemed like a stretch and this one, this doesn't seem like one. I don't know. I just am always kind of, I think I'm more interested in, in what's allowed and what's not allowed because I know there's other stuff in this case they did not allow to come into court. So to say he rented a movie you know, I don't know. I, I get it. Right. But it still feels like, all right, we're reaching a little bit. Because if this wasn't a planned thing, that's kind of weird to me to be like, he's like, oh, yeah, remember that movie I watched a few weeks ago? Huh, I'm going to try that. That isn't, I don't know. I don't know why I always try to get into the mind of a killer, but it's really not doing well for me. <laughs> <laughs> so just one week after being charged with Brooks' murder, the police located the body of Erica Norman in a cornfield near Vincennes. Brian ended up pleading guilty to Erica's murder and was eventually sentenced to 60 years in prison in that case. He continued to deny his involvement in Brooke's death, so that case actually went to trial in December of 2000. The prosecution presented 194 exhibits and photographs as part of their case, but they were not allowed to tell the jury that Brian had pleaded guilty in another murder trial until after this jury had already reached the verdict. In the end, Brian Jones was found guilty of Brooke Baker's murder and was eventually sentenced to life in prison. In 2002, Brian appealed his conviction, stating that even though there was DNA evidence to prove that he had sexual intercourse with Brooke, there was nothing to prove that this sexual contact occurred at the same time as the murder. His argument was that the DNA evidence merely suggests the possibility that he was the murderer, but it does not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I can see, I definitely... You know, we don't usually say what our opinion on guilt or innocence. I think he is probably guilty in this case. But I think that's also a really like it is kind of a good argument. Like, yeah, that's a good one. I can see where his attorneys would be like, well, this is like kind of something that we might try, you know, to get you out because it does make sense. Like just because you've slept with someone doesn't mean there will be signs of that, even if they didn't aren't the ones who killed you. Like there's still there still will be signs that you were with that person that night. So I kind of can see how that argument, it does make sense to try and pull that one. Well, and if you're not allowed to bring up the other thing you've been charged with. So if you're allowed to bring up that other case in court or if, or if the prosecution's allowed to say, also, this guy's already guilty of this other murder and rape, then if it's just a standalone, then you can see how that has more legs. If, it, yeah. if you were like, well, he's also killed this other person and raped this other person, then you think, well, this is a pattern. But without it, I can see how, like you're saying, how do you prove how do you prove one turned into the other or whatever? Right, exactly. So the court wasn't buying this at all, and they felt that the DNA evidence combined with the circumstantial evidence in this case was more than enough to uphold his conviction. So Brian is currently serving his sentence at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility in Indiana. It's interesting to me that he moved away. And then came back to this town because had he stayed, stayed away and this sort of a crime happened in California, they may have never made the connection to this, right? Because they didn't find his DNA at Erica's crime scene. So he could have gotten away with it had it been in another state. They would have never had his DNA. If he didn't leave his DNA at another crime scene, am I making sense? They would have never pulled it and never been able to put it on him here in Brooks' case. So the fact that he came back to this town after leaving and he could have gotten away with it is, I don't really understand that. If you're yeah. not, it just seems like if you were able to get away, you would stay away. But we always talk about this. You always make this point. I say you is like in a positive, like 
people are a lot of times very narcissistic and think they can get away with it. And then I guess you're just cocky and like, sure, I can move back to that town. They haven't figured it out yet, but eventually you get caught. Yeah. But then to go back to the same town and commit the same crime, crime, the same, yeah, that just seems like that's just not very intelligent. I mean, obviously murdering people is not very wise any in the first place, but I just feel like, yeah, you're just really pushing your luck to go back to the same town and commit the same type of murder and then hope that you're not going to get caught. And, you know, and it is a college town, but I was thinking also that like, it's so, it is so lucky that the bar, whoever answered the phone at that place was able to be like, yeah, I know who she is. And yes, she was here. And then also to say, and this is who she was with, because I feel like that kind of thing would only happen in a college town. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't, normally just call up a bar and be like, maybe if this person was a regular, they'd be like, yeah, they were here, but are they going to know like who they're with? And so it just, everything kind of like fell into place for the police to even be able to track him down and kind of put these two things together and realize that he was connected to both of the victims and then, you know, everything led back to him. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was just kind of lucky in this case that kind of made everything come together. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so it is the first of the month, so we have our hero segment. And this one this month comes from Christina Rodriguez, and uh, she emailed us at lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com. If there's a hero in your life, please feel free to send us an email, put the subject line hero, and we will look through those, and we pick one each month, beginning of the month, and this is this month's. That was a lot of word vomit. So Christina writes, her hero is her father. She says, I've been a single parent since I was 17 years old, and I'm now 35 and have five children. And no matter what I went through or my children went through, even to this day, my father never walked away, and he promised he'd always be a dad to my children, and he kept his word. His health is deteriorating, and he's not getting any younger, and it would be nice for him to know that he's my hero. I don't know where I would be with my children without my dad. I can't express how grateful I am to be blessed with a father like this, and I'm just so grateful for this, and I hope and pray I get many more years out of him. Thank you so much, Christina, for sending that in. Thank you to your dad for being a hero. That's so awesome. So great to have such an encouraging person in your family. And we hope he's doing well. We hope your kids are doing well. We hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for sending that in. So that is the episode for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Just a quick reminder before we get out of here, we have our live show coming up in Chicago. That is on March 27th at the Chicago City Winery. And we are really excited about that. We've mentioned it Lots of times over the last few weeks, but yeah, but we really are excited. We have a really awesome case picked out and it's a very moms and murder story. So if you enjoy, I think it's very early days, moms and murder more than maybe now. It's the kind of stories that I feel like we found a lot more of them in the beginning. So if you liked the old moms and murder. I don't know how we never did this one. Yeah. Yeah. So if you liked like early days, moms and murder, where it was a little lighter and a little less structured, That's probably what this is going to be like. And there is a lot of crazy stuff going on in the case. So yeah, come out and see it. Like Melissa said once before, you're either going to see a train wreck live or it's going to be amazing. And you can tell everyone that you saw it first. So so yeah, if you want to find tickets for that, you can look in our show notes. We have a link there that you can purchase tickets. And so that's that. So Melissa, thoughts on the live show. Are you excited? 
<laughs> Melissa thoughts on the live show. I expect a reporter to stand here and put a microphone in my face. There's one in my face. So that works. I am very <laughs> excited. We talk about it a lot and we talk about how nervous we are. And then one of us is typically more nervous than the other one and kind of talks the other one down. And so I feel like we we balance each other with nerves. And the day of the show, though, it's going to be a cluster and we're both just going to be <laughs> panicking. But it'll be really fun. And my sister and brother-in-law always say the best Melissa is the nervous Melissa. And so that's a fun thing to witness when I'm fully spiraling. That I think I it totally agree her, with that. Yeah. That's a very accurate, it's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa that's put together is no fun, but Melissa that looks like she's headed for a nervous breakdown. She's a fun <laughs> one to watch. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun. So we are super excited about it. Also, we have our Patreon episode up for the month, uh, patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. If you are interested in that, we have the new bonus episode. There's stickers, magnets, letters, no cards. Oh my. Everything you could possibly want, I think, is over there. But if you want to check that out, momsandmurder.com. Nope. Patreon.com slash podcast. Mandy, I should stop talking. Is there anything else? That's it. We're done. We're good here. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, we're good. CrimeCon, we've mentioned. You can use our code MNM2020 get 10% off your standard badge. That is in May, May 1st through 3rd here in our beautiful hometown of Orlando, Florida. So, Yeah. That's, I think, it, though. I think we've mentioned our everything. We've mentioned <laughs> our everything. You're welcome. Yeah. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com, where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.